I am not a poet, but I do have the good sense to surround myself with poets, to listen to the words of their poetry and to hear and take in the wisdom of their messages. This past year, I was working through a theme-based curriculum in a small group setting, and two of the themes that really stuck with me were the themes of joy and of presence. Listen to the way that Barbara Kingsolver describes joy. In my own worst seasons, I've come back from the colorless world of despair by forcing myself to look hard for a long time at a single glorious thing, a flame of red geranium outside my bedroom window, my daughter in a yellow dress, the perfect outline of a full dark sphere behind the crescent moon, until I learned to be in love with my life again like a stroke victim retraining new parts of the brain to grasp lost skills. I have taught myself joy over and over again. Hence the title of my sermon today, The Joy of Small Things. To notice and truly appreciate the small things requires slowing down and giving those small things your attention. Listen to the way that novelist Henry Miller says it. The moment one gives close attention to anything even a blade of grass, it becomes a mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. This winter, when I was in a season of despair and struggling to find joy, I decided to take the advice of the poets. I chose one thing and I gave it all my attention to see what kind of world I found within it and the joy therein. It was a cold day in November and the thing I held in my hand was an amaryllis bulb. My first impression was that it was plain looking, even dirty. It was an ugly brown orb with wispy roots protruding from its bottom and some kind of imperfect and unformed opening on its top. But then I thought about the incredible life that was inside this bulb, the life that was growing as I was holding it. It was tenacious, surprising, and even inspiring. Like an acorn or an egg, this bulb held both the symbol and the reality of new life. From this bulb would sprout a small green shoot, and that shoot would grow and eventually bud and then bloom into a beautiful red flower, which would nurture the lives of some bees, which in turn make the world go round with their pollination. It was not at all difficult to see a whole world inside this one seemingly unremarkable bulb. Sometimes great and amazing things come in small and unremarkable packages. Just ask Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> no one expects much from him, but he is often the embodiment of courage and of virtue in action. I read a whole book about him recently called The Tay of Piglet, but that is a sermon for another day. Keeping in mind Barbara Kingsolver's single glorious thing, I have a question for you. What is the last small thing that has brought you joy? Has there been anything recently to which you've given your full attention? And if so, what did you find there? This past summer, I lived and worked in Minneapolis. And one day, I decided to take the long and scenic way home from work. Along the Cedar Lake Trails, a swath of land that used to house old railroad lines, but now was comprised of prairie grasses, wildlife, and bike and running trails. I'm not sure why I decided on the scenic route, but I hope that it was the gentle nudging of the poets that reminded me to seek out joy and to practice presence. Much like Henry Miller's magnificent world in a blade of grass, 
Maybe it was even my understanding, derived from Wendell Berry, about the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. But either way, I'm so grateful for whatever it was that brought me to those trails. Because on the way home, I encountered a runner who had stopped in the middle of the running path because he was 20 feet away from a young deer. I probably wouldn't have noticed the deer had it not been for the other person noticing first. Isn't that how it is sometimes? Sometimes we don't notice the beauty itself, but we notice the noticing. And that's a fine place to start. So for about 15 minutes, the stranger and I just stopped and stood and noticed. The deer noticed us too. She was watching us. She noticed the slow movements of the runner reaching for his phone to take a picture. She occasionally would put her head up in the air as if she was smelling the air. And look, whether or not you consider encountering a deer along the outskirts of an urban center a big thing or a small thing, either way, I found joy. Okay, I have a confession to make. The title of today's sermon is actually a little bit deceptive. To those of you that came only to hear about joy, I give my heartfelt apologies. <laughs> but there is more to explore. The title should have been, The Joys and Frustrations of Small Things. And by your laughter, I can sense that you know what I'm talking about. I don't know about you, but sometimes the smallest little things can bring large amounts of frustration, especially if we give those little things all of our attention, dare I call it even obsession. For instance, just last week, some friends and I did an 850-piece puzzle, only to find that one piece was missing. <laughs> you understand. So I want to tell you a story, but I have to start with a quick disclaimer, and this may surprise you. I'm not perfect. I know, it's shocking. But just in case you were unsure, I'd love to disabuse you of that misperception. I have made mistakes, and I've learned from them, and I would love to invite other people to learn from them as well, so that you can choose to avoid making the same mistakes. So the story begins about 10 years ago, when my roommate at the time was studying gender and sexuality at the University of Minnesota. She made friends with a person who did not identify as male or female. This person refused to use he pronouns or she pronouns. For a time, this person was using their name as their pronoun. For a time, this person utilized Z as their pronoun. And then Z ended up using they as their pronoun. Now remember, this was 10 years ago, and it was the first time that I had heard about the use of they as a singular pronoun. I got into a heated debate with my roommate about pronouns. They was a plural pronoun. By its very nature, it means more than one. It cannot refer to a single person. We are undercutting the very essence and nature of the word they when we use it to describe one person. Two plus two can never equal five, etc. You understand the drill. I was such a literalist back then. I had been taught rules to help me make sense of my world, and it felt like these worlds were being upended. But here's the rub. I was not in relationship with this friend of my roommate. At that point in my life, I did not know any transgender people, and I was operating out of a fear-based mentality and out of an orientation to the rules. As adamant as I wanted to be about following the rules of language, I learned with astonishment on a regular basis that I was misusing the English language. Here are some examples. For all intensive purposes. Uh, irregardless. Or maybe you've heard a common Minnesotan phrase that makes so many non-Minnesotans cringe, I'm gonna go to the store, you coming with? <laughs> Not proper. Despite learning the hard way that I should be more humble about my actual linguistic knowledge, 
I still was dogmatic about the pronoun they and its only acceptable use as a plural pronoun. Now, through the intervening years since that time, I have become more educated about gender, the ever-evolving reality that we call language, and about the desire to listen deeply when a marginalized person tells me about their struggles and the small things that bring them joy. My understanding of gender is so vastly different from where it was 10 years ago, and I wonder if yours is too. My home congregation recently had a powerful worship service and a workshop on gender, led by the Reverend Karen Herring and her genderqueer child, Kat. I will always be grateful for people like them who are doing the hard work of educating, dispelling stereotypes, and inviting us to imagine and reimagine different and more expansive worlds. From a language standpoint, I have come to understand that the controversy caused by using they as a singular pronoun has an antecedent in an earlier controversy about how to use the pronoun you. Thou was the singular second person pronoun and you was plural. There was nuance and depth to these two words, of course, having to do with formality and titles of respect. But at the end of the day, there were many people that were unwilling to use the pronoun you for the singular. In their mind, you was only a plural pronoun. It couldn't work for the singular. And there might have also been a fear that there would be too much confusion. And look at us now. <laughs> we use you for both the singular and the plural. And sometimes we use y'all to help confusion, <laughs> depending on what state you live in. We get creative, see, we adapt. We tend to think that we are really resistant to change. And don't get me wrong, sometimes we are. And yet, change is a possibility. What I didn't know 10 years ago, but I have the language for now, is that we are being asked to prioritize impact over grammar. Even if we do not fully grasp the ever-evolving understanding about gender or the flexibility of our shared language's rules of grammar and syntax, we can still defer to a person's requests. If someone uses they, them pronouns for themselves, we can choose to join them and affirm them in their choice over our own insistence about grammar rules. My roommate's friend didn't care about my passion for grammar. They wanted me to prioritize the impact that my words had on them over my own obsession with the rules. They wanted me to utilize more imagination and to dream with them about new ways that our language can be used while still respecting their gender identity and their choices for themselves. So, what does this principle of impact over grammar look like at a denominational level when we are looking to make decisions for our broader association of Unitarian Universalist congregations? What happens at our denomination's General Assembly when proposed resolutions and statements of conscience contain small frustrations for some and small joys for others? The title of this sermon really could have been How Seemingly Small Bet Things Bring Such Joy and Cause Frustration colon, lessons I learned at GA. <laughs> Imagine with me, during a general session, there is a proposal on the floor that we adopt a resolution calling on our UUA leadership and staff, including the directors of the Standing on the Side of Love campaign, to reimagine a justice-building campaign that is more inclusive of all body types and abilities by using different language. The person at the pro microphone is the woman who wrote the resolution, and her name is Reverend Teresa Inez Soto. She is Latinx and she is in a motorized scooter. She is explaining that not all people who are working and fighting for justice stand on the side of love or march for justice. Many justice seekers are sitting on the side of love and rolling for justice. And I wanna pause for a moment. This might seem like petty or frustrating to you. Stick with me. 
I want to let you look, to dig a little deeper here. How might changing this seemingly small detail bring someone else some big joy? Or how might this thing that seems so small and trivial to one person be such a big deal for someone else? I personally know Teresa, and I have heard countless stories of ways that she has been ignored and made invisible. When she goes to a restaurant with a friend, most of the questions that are directed toward her actually get asked to the friend, speaking about her as if she can't answer for herself. If a wheelchair accessible taxi arrives to pick up her and a friend, the friend is asked questions about how to fold, load, and unload her motorized scooter, even though Teresa is the one that knows best how to do that. She is the one that uses it daily. Okay, so back to that moment at GA. I want to give a little context. At this point, we've already heard the current acting director of the Standing on the Side of Love campaign admit, with humility, that she is aware that the campaign name utilizes ableist language and that that language is hurtful for some people. The slogan for the campaign originally came from the song of the same name by Jason Shelton, who was in attendance at GA. He has just explained to those who are gathered that he has done some soul searching and has heard the critique about the language of the song, and he agrees with the critique. He wants to use more expansive language that recognizes the contributions of all justice seekers. He has edited the song, replacing the phrase and title, Standing on the Side of Love, with the phrase, Answering the Call of Love. We have sung this new version together, and it is powerful. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world does this relate to the blade of grass that Henry Miller described as containing an incredibly magnificent world in itself? But for me and for many others, this new language opens up a world of possibilities. When I hear the phrase, answering the call of love, I picture the woman with a chronic illness who is rarely able to leave her house, who still participates in marches for justice by making beautiful signs for the march. She does not stand on the side of love. She answers the call of love with her art. When I hear the phrase, answering the call of love, I picture the woman in Denver who uses a wheelchair who participated in a 58-hour sit-in, protesting the proposed cuts to Medicaid by the current healthcare plan. She did not stand on the side of love. She answered the call of love by sitting. I wonder how this seemingly small detail can mean a world of difference to someone, especially someone who rarely sees themselves represented in everyday language or in the most commonly used metaphors. At one point during GA, one of our denomination's interim co-presidents was talking about people who were advocating for justice, people who were answering the call of love. And the phrase he used was, people who have been marching, walking, and rolling for justice. I can only imagine how good it might feel for a person in a wheelchair to hear those words from the president of their denomination, how radical it might feel to be seen and acknowledged. You see, the joy of small things. We have the choice to change and adapt our language. We can choose to adapt because we feel an obligation or because we feel forced into the decision. We can blame people who wanna police our words or nitpick about small things, or we can see the world of joy that lies in seemingly small places and the world of possibilities that lie in some seemingly small phrases. Which will you choose? Blessed be and amen. <laughs>